So hello, Evangelos. Uh, my name is Ian Marvey. Um, see, I'm a lifelong food justice, food systems uh, laborer, worker, uh, activist, organizer, and social entrepreneur. Um, I grew up in the Twin Cities, uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, I think it's important for all of us to have a sense of where we're from, not just the families, but the, the culture and the land. Um, I mean, you being from Greece and the incredible history there, not just ancient, but contemporary history um, over the last hundred years is, has been quite interesting to me. Um, Minnesota is a place of progressive politics. Um, it's rooted in the land. I mean, the progressive party was from the Dakotas, Minnesota. Um, there were socialist governors there in the last century. Um, it's also the land of the Anishinaabeg and the Lakota. Um, and I think that's an incredibly important part of my history. And obviously the history of the United States is settler colonial state and, um, and what that means to how we envision a future and uh, how we build a future. So um, I come from a line of uh, educators. Uh, my mother and father were educators. Um, family were involved in land use issues, um, housing development, uh, developed some of the first integrated housing um, in Minnesota uh, in the 50s um, and uh, found my way to food really not just because we had a garden in the background or backyard but uh, but because I needed to work I grew up with a single mother um, and uh, when I was seven she was uh, in between jobs she'd been a professional dancer and uh found her way to being a waitress and she needed a place for a seven-year-old to be. So I started washing dishes. Um, and then my brother and I took over the baking business at that uh, cafe. It's called Modern Times. It was a political institution with a neighborhood newspaper being published out of the second floor. It was a gathering space um, inspired by the notions of Charlie Chaplin, to be honest. I mean, that's why it was called Modern Times. And uh, I worked my way into the restaurant industry and um, was, you know, doing that work really until I was in my twenties. Um, I've paid my way through college. Um, I found my way to New York for love, work and location. Um, and uh, also began working for young people um, who'd been caught up in the juvenile justice system um, or the injustice system or the incarceration system. Um, and uh, through that found my way to a community garden. And in that community garden <clears throat> began to do um, what is now called restorative justice work um, where the young people who had been involved in the courts were gaining skills um, while providing services to the community. Um, and uh, inspired by one teenager in that space, I began to, um, who essentially said uh, to me, can I get a job doing this work? Um, 
he, his family was involved in the heroin trade in the neighborhood and he really, he saw um, a progressive ROI where he might not have to go to jail. Um, ROI meaning return on investment for his time. Um, and there was no food justice movement yet. Um, there was some work being done in food, on food sovereignty nationally, um, within the indigenous communities and internationally. Um, food security was really the term at the time. Um, but inspired by this young man's request, I began working with another gentleman, Michael Hurwitz, um, and a team of youth to um, dream and vision and plan what would become added value. Um, and added value at its roots and beginnings was really a youth empowerment program, um, a youth development program designed to provide essential services, meaning growing food and selling food in the community <clears throat> of Red Hook, Brooklyn, um, and grew from there. Um, at that point, the movement was very small. Um, there might've been 50 organizations in the country doing youth and agriculture work. Um, there was essentially no urban farming uh, per se in New York City, save for a historic farm out on Governor's Island. There was a lot of community gardening, meaning the production of food. Um, and so I differentiate between community gardening urban farming and place that all under the sort of rubric of urban agriculture. Um, there may have been 50, 75 school gardens in the city at that time. So we're talking about 2001. Um, the farm to cafeteria movement had barely begun. It was really Alice Waters and Ann Cooper on the East Coast doing that work. Um, <clears throat> The uh, certainly the local food movement has its roots um, in food cooperatives and uh, progressive restaurateurs. But at that point in New York City, there may have been 10 restaurants in the city um, practically doing farm to restaurant work, um, sourcing a significant portion of their produce from the local farmers markets. And even uh, some restaurants, one that I worked at was to be honest, illegally um, getting food from local fishermen out of, you know, who would go out in boats into the, out into the sound. Um, they were getting deer from hunters in season uh, that would show up late at night. Um, there, the industry hadn't blossomed um, in any of those spaces. There was certainly no academic engagement with uh, urban agriculture at that point, um, at least in the United States, let alone uh, bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, and now PhDs at most of the leading institutions in New York City. Um, and I say that all not to, um, not to highlight my own ingenuity, but mostly the ingenuity of this young person uh, African-American man from the Reddick houses, um, teenager who had had a traumatic brain injury, but for him, um, the opportunity to do something positive while putting funds in his pocket um, was meaningful. Um, 
And that's really the antecedents of added value from my roots at home in Minnesota um, to coming to uh, New York City and being inspired by the voice of uh, those most in need and those who have more often than not more of the answers to the challenges that exist in their communities than, uh, than those who, who don't live there. Um, and, and so in that planning process, we developed added value um, and uh, sought out resources and very classically uh, asked friends and family. Uh, Michael Hurwitz came from a little, a family of more resources than I. Um, we made some connections to some foundations in our first year. Uh, we ran on a budget of $20,000 and uh, lots of dreams. Um, we promised a lot and delivered a little. Uh, our first class, uh, first cohort started in April of 2001. And uh, we started with 20 teenagers. And a week later, we had 13. And two weeks later, we had seven. So Ian, how can you describe yeah. exactly how added value worked? Meaning, um, so you worked with cohorts of teenagers, and you worked with them for how long at the time? Sure. So um, both Michael and I had training and experience in youth development work, um, practical training, um, education um, in the work, and so we designed a program that was working with teenagers in an after-school and weekend setting. Um, we liked to, at the time, talk about it as a, essentially like a YMCA with no pool and no basketball court, um, but a, a farm. And we were trying to develop their connections to their community, their skills, um, hard skills, meaning you know, um, transferable skills that could help them with future employment cognitive skills that could help them um, chart their own personal course in life and, um, and relationships to both um, each other and their community and to the social issues of the day. Um, and that program was designed to be longitudinal. So we brought in new cohorts each year and if you will promoted um, young folks who wanted to continue on, who had shown um, interest and promoted them into leadership positions over years. And um, that, that was our antecedents. Um, we developed some of the very early farm to school programs along with an organization called Food Change, which is now part of City Harvest in New York City. Um, so we developed a replacement curricula for science for the second grade public school in our neighborhood. We worked with three junior highs um, to bring students in and we eventually had almost 800 students come for one-time visits. So, um, and in and all of that, we were running farmer's markets, direct selling to CSAs, or ran a CSA and was, were direct selling to restaurants, bodegas in the neighborhood, a juice bar. Um, and uh, so we developed a structure that was multi-tiered and multifaceted. Um, 
but your idea, so your idea was not to rely on donations but but to develop sources of revenue definitely um we were never self-sufficient and that was never the the business model um our early investor was actually uh heifer international most folks in the united states know them as the uh catalog that comes around right about now during the holiday seasons where you would buy a an animal or a herd of animals for a family in let's say east africa or el salvador and to, and help that family develop um food systems that were sustainable and economic uh revenue to help them uh reach their dreams and at that point heifer international was the largest and maybe really one of the only investors in urban agriculture in the country. And they gave us a large grant. Their, their introductory grants could be up to $100,000 a year for three years. Um, and uh, they helped us connect to the existing network that they had established. Um, and then through some discussions, I individually applied to the Echo and Green Foundation and I'm a 2002 Echo and Green Social Entrepreneur Fellow. Um, and so I received, joined a cohort um, and Echo and Green being essentially sort of a feeder pool to um, Ashoka, feeder pool to the Skoll Fellowships, um, was a place that at that time was really nurturing, quite radical, um social entrepreneurs doing work uh in a multitude of fields and so we did um work with foundations we worked with city government we worked with individual donors um we worked with uh city state and federal governments um with funding streams and uh, we did fee for service as well as uh, sold produce and uh, essentially at the in our heyday we were if you will, a third revenue generating, a third foundations, and a third either government work or individual donor. Great. Uh, I'm looking at your website right now. Um, you've transitioned uh, from Redwood from added value to being a consultant now. Um, no. Added added value has remained the same organization and has just transferred has been transferred to different executive directors etc or has it changed their mission it's, it's oh the mission hasn't changed so um we were hit incredibly hard in the 2008 collapse we were sort of we were we just secured a million and a quarter in state tax credits that we were in discussion with um, I actually met Judy Diamond, Jamie Diamond's wife, and we were in negotiation with the bank to sell them our tax credits. We were, we'd received a $300,000 unrestricted grant. Um, Jamie Diamond and all of that of city, city group or? Of, of city, of city group, sorry. Yeah. Um, and so we were looking at transitioning me into being, um, sort of a founder in public face, growing the institution to have a COO and uh, essentially a CEO. Um, and 2008, we went from being 
a half million dollar year organization with a million and a quarter on the come to being a essentially a $300,000, $250,000 organization in 2009. And the tax credits were eliminated and our major donor um, lost all his, literally $50 million in the Madoff scandal. Um, so I received a phone call from uh, a friend of mine who said, Ian, I can't give you that money. It doesn't actually exist. Um, so where we where does the go money ahead. go? Where does the money go? Like for when you were a five hundred thousand dollar a year uh, organization, how did you budget that? Meaning, where did it all? How was it all allocated? Well, at that point, we had six full time staff. Um, we had fifteen to twenty teenagers who were being paid a not a wage but a stipend. We were very intentional about that at the time. Um, but the stipend amounted to roughly $7.50 an hour, which at that time was $2 above minimum wage still, um, and which essentially meant a teenager was bringing home in the course of the year anywhere between $1,500 and $3,500 a year, where in Red Hook, um, that amounts to 10% of a family's income until the most recent explosion in those census tracts, the average income for a family of four in, in Red Hook, Brooklyn, hovered around $25,000, which was $14,000 below the poverty line. So we were allocating a significant portion of our resources to ensure that the teens who were working with us as interns were receiving a meaningful um, compensation for their time. Um, and meaningful to their family, not just to heading off to the movies or buying a new CD. Um, which and other, other than that, the expenses went to towards renting properties? Or... The properties were never rented, actually. We partnered with the city in every instance, um, and actually the state at a certain point. Um, we operated farms out in the Rockaways um, in Arvern, New York, or Arvern, Queens. Um, we then partnered with the city to transform a dilapidated uh, baseball field into a three acre farm, which is now Red Hook Farm across the street from Ikea. Um, and we pioneered the farming programs out on Governor's Island. Um, we also worked with the New York City Housing Authority to develop their urban agriculture farms and built a farm there. So those were all memorandums of understanding um, and licensing agreements as opposed to actually leased land. Um, that's different in many of the other cities in, New in the country, but the property values um, in New York are such that the, the financing for scalable urban agriculture is, is quite limited. Right. Have you kept in touch with any of your alumni? Oh yeah, um, many of them. Um, having lived and worked in the neighborhood and primarily worked with teens from the neighborhood. Um, I mean, a lot of my kids are parents um, who aren't kids any longer. They're in their mid-30s even. Um, so one of them's scratching 40 already, actually. Um, so how has this experience with added value affected their lives? I mean, I, I can say... 
I can answer that in a number of ways. Um, I guess the first and most important to me is that uh, our work was never about growing farmers, um, nor was it necessarily about um, getting kids to college. It was about providing them with the tools to make decisions in their life that were geared towards pro-social engagement, um, contribution to society and the ability to make decisions about their own lives. Um, and then the skills to negotiate the complexities of society. That was really our social mission. Um, and the entrepreneurial factor for, was Michael and I's innovation to, to use farming and agriculture as a tool to do that and address a social need. Um, so to be honest, the young man who helped inspire added value ended up doing almost five years time um, for drug trade. Um, but he's no longer in jail and he's nurturing his family in a good business. Um, I have teenagers, uh, worked with a wonderful Yemen, Yemeni young man who is now a dentist and spends his summer working with um, Syrian refugees doing dental work. Um, another young gentleman is actually runs Grow NYC's greenhouse, or not greenhouse, warehouses, and Grow NYC operates the largest local food distribution um, network in New York City that they'll do almost $16 million in sales next year, um, all sourced from farmers within 200 and 250 miles of New York City. And so he's making $85,000 a year. He's got a 401k. Um, so it runs the gamut. Um, and, and I think for Michael and I in founding the institution, um, we would always say, and I would say today in my, in, if I was working with teens, that if I'm not losing teenagers to the struggles of society, I'm, I've probably not, um, I'm not working with the right teenagers. I, um, I want to be working with the young people who are in communities that are socially disinvested, in communities that are economically segregated um, and facing educational systems that are underfunded and under-resourced. And I wanna be helping them, um, which means you're gonna lose some kids. Um, if anybody tells you all of their kids are going to college, they're they're, they may be telling the truth. Um, and I would say congratulations to them. And I would also say there are, there are more kids that need more help than that. Those kids, many of those kids are probably going to college irrespective. So Added Value was uh, essentially had a very similar mission as the Boys and Girls Club, but the vehicle was agriculture, correct? If you will, yeah, yeah. Um, not so unlike- what, Yeah, go ahead, sorry. I mean, there, there was a, an organization called NIFTI, National Institute for Tre Teaching Entrepreneurship. Um, and they would have been the most akin to us in that they were um, working with teens throughout the country. I think our first year at Added Value, we worked with our, ended our year with seven and they finished their, they had graduated their one millionth student. Um, but essentially, Nifty was teaching kids to um, 
buy low and sell high, see a market opportunity and, and seize it. There was no social mission. Um, and uh, we weren't interested in teaching kids to buy M&Ms at Costco and sell them on the bus um, or buy a pack of CDs at uh, Staples, rip music and sell CDs on the street. We wanted to help young people see that they could develop skills and um, grow in a way where they could have a living wage, maybe get ahead, and uh, while also supporting their community and addressing social injustice. So what is it about agriculture specifically as a vehicle as opposed to selling M&Ms, as opposed to <laughs> buying and selling uh, that is so appealing to you? Well, so agriculture in particular um, has, uh, there are a number of things. Um, one thing we noticed very early on is that the process of growing something practically allows young people, particularly in um, disinvested settings, to start and finish projects. Um, you can grow a salad in 21 days. Um, so over the course of three to four weeks, a young person could um, till land, um, plant seeds, nurture those seeds, um, watch them grow, harvest them and donate and sell them. Um, and I would argue that there's a paucity of opportunity um, for young people, particularly urban young people, particularly young people in disinvested communities to start and see projects through. Um, urban agriculture or agriculture in general provides um, therapeutic opportunities for people to be nurturing of each other, um, of the soil. Um, and really the name added value itself came from the concept that uh, the sun is always, literally the sun is contributing energy to the planet all day. Um, and that all living creatures live in a in what might be called right relationship to that energy they're doing a job to support cycles and it's only the human being that has to make a choice each day and in some ways through each action to live in a right relationship with that cycle of energy um, those cyclical economies is the term we're using now um, those regenerative energies um, humans need to choose to add value each day in the way that the rest of the flora and fauna of the planet don't. Um, and so we really felt that agriculture and found that agriculture um, was an ideal venue for teens um, in these settings. It addressed um, what would be called food apartheid or food issues of being food deserts. It addressed um, the health disparities that were partially caused by those, uh, lack of access to healthy, safe, and affordable food. And it did so in a way that moved money within a community. So our CSA, for example, was only drew from the 11231 zip code. Uh, if somebody wanted to shop at our market, they were I obviously welcome to come and we sold to restaurants 
that we respected and respected us. But our CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, only drew from within the physically isolated neighborhood of Red Hook, which meant that the vast majority of the folks spending money at our market lived in our neighborhood and were essentially providing financial resources to teenagers in their community in exchange for healthy and affordable foods. So uh, other than the social, economic, and economic missions, there's also a spiritual aspect to added value. Uh, I, I would say the intention was there. Um, I think in ideally in agriculture is a spiritual act. Um, and we, you know, whether you do believe in that through, you know, understanding um, through a religion um, or whether you believe in that through understanding the science of the actual touching of microorganisms and how that affects one's mood and spirit. Mm -hmm. um, there is definitely um, a healing aspect in uh, sustainable regenerative agriculture. Yeah, so uh, again, back to the spirituality aspect. So sure. how important do you think is the att is attention to symbolism and the spirit of a community when one is trying to affect change in a community? Uh, I think it's critical. And I think um, in many ways, it's something that is missing from much of the field that we would call social entrepreneurship. Um, I think historically on the left and in progressive movements um, here in the United States at the least, uh, we've shied away from engagement with people's spirituality, with their religions. Um, I mean, we know for example, from statistics that the vast majority of uh, charity done in the United States is done through people's religious institutions. Um, and disproportionately that's done in poor communities. Um, I mean, you wanna fund something in an African-American community historically, it was your church that was gonna be your social network. Um, uh, so I think meeting um, people where their, um, where their emotional, social ties are and building off of that is critical. Um, Heifer International actually as a institution was founded by members of the Mennonite church who um, following World War II saw a need particularly in Spain um, for the rebuilding of agricultural cooperatives. And so a group of Mennonites actually chartered a boat with heifers um, and sailed to Spain and developed a system where they would donate these heifers to farmers um, with the pledge from the farmer that they would pass on that gift so that each, the firstborn of each heifer would be given to another member of your community or cooperative. Um, so it was the underpinning of social mission, uh, spiritual mission, 
meeting um, global need that developed what essentially at that time was you know, a mutual aid society, if you will, um, or networks of mutual aid societies. And Heifer was a, was a donor to that, those systems. I have noticed that uh, a lot of attention lately is paid on, uh, is put on uh, things like uh, SROI, et cetera, um, which is a instrument for proving that one has proper uh, social return on investment, I guess. Um, however, intangible things like uh, the spirit of the community that we just discussed are never mentioned when it comes to trying to appeal to uh, fundraisers. To um, right. funders, um, does that have to do with the way that uh, the world of fundraising is built? Um, the fact that foundations need tangible proof of impact in order to continue funding. Mm. Well, I would say it's the way capital is structured. So foundations are one part of a capital structure, um, and so an SROI, you know, is primarily at this point being motivated by by financial institutions, think tanks, um, and industry. Uh, and most research recently is suggesting that much of that um, has become its own industry already. And in that, uh, if you will, there's a lot of greenwashing. It's not quite the right term any longer in the metrics of SROI. Um, uh, the what does, phone what does greenwashing mean? Um, essentially, well, greenwashing came uh, comes out of the concept that you know, greening, um, being more sustainable, uh, was something that was measurable, and but greenwashing was like putting a lipstick on a pig or painting the house without dealing with the structural issues. Um, and quite a bit of research, actually, over the last year has come out, for example, around um, uh, what's called CEA, Controlled Environmental Agriculture. Um, a lot of it is coming out around um, the uh, plant-based foods industry in that uh, without having true cost accounting, um, it's quite easy to uh, avoid your the detrimental impacts um, and certainly SROI, as you mentioned, is not taking into consideration social emotional health, social well-being, collective well-beings. Um, and that, so that, that is not just the, the problem of foundations, that's the problem of, of capital. Capital has no interest in social outcomes. Um, I mean, literally the phone call that I just uh, haunt, hung up on, I'm having a conversation with some folks in the Lakota Nation um, about uh, how to secure funding for uh, the return of buffalo to the prairie lands. And part of our conversation is how to assist funders in understanding that literally the, not only is the presence of the buffalo impacting the prairie, which is part of the carbon sequestering uh, question, but it's impacting the social emotional health of a colonized people. 
um, and addressing some of their religious needs. I mean, within their spiritual framework, um, it is called the Buffalo Nation. They, the, the Buffalo are sentient beings, they're relatives. Um, and so to have uh, healthy relatives, to have relatives close by um, is meaningful and uh, meaningful to the Lakota people. Um, and so, that's our, our conversation right now is how, how do we help investors understand that that can be part of the ROI? It's interesting how you call them investors and you don't call them donors or. Funders. Well, it could, it, I guess what I'm saying is it's both. Um, you asked a question specifically about foundation. So, you, so uh, in the case of uh, the Lakota nation, what is the situation there? Is, there? is there an actual investment where investors would get some kind of ROI or? Oh, absolutely. There are businesses, there are farms in the, on, within Lakota lands and run by Lakota. Um, the Tonka Bar um, is run by native, um, a native business, native owned business, um, then you can find Tonka bars in many of the local grocery stores. Um, and so that, that is a whole supply chain of for-profit businesses um, that is, that exists in part because of its last year, 125% growth. And uh, in part, because as with all, um, all businesses, particularly agriculture, startup and operations um, is a, is a long-term issue. Um, and so there are investors um, and we're trying to figure out how to help investors look beyond carbon tax credits to um, some of those social well-being that you're mentioning, some of the spiritual well-being that you're mentioning. So in the case of uh, Lakota, there is a group of businesses under the umbrella of a corporation or some kind of an organization, some collaborative or something, and then investors invest directly in that, or is there some other structuring to it? Uh, I mean, it's called Native uh, Natural Foods. It's a for-profit entity that develops products for sale on the open market. Um, they are wholly owned by a not-for-profit that's dedicated to the return of the buffalo to um, the Lakota lands. Um, but out of that has grown a whole supply chain of businesses that are, you know, growing out, if you will, feedstocks. So they're growing young buffalo to sell to new ranchers. Um, so yeah, it's a full economic structure. Um, there are certainly donors to projects in Lakota country, just as there are donors to elite public schools in New York City. Um, most of the colleges we live in and around in the urban environments are some of the largest landholders in cities at this point. Um, to call a, a college a not-for-profit is dubious in my opinion, actually. Um, it functions much like a corporation, um, a for-profit corporation that is all not-for-profits are corporations. 
So what uh, clients are you working with now other than the Lakota Nation? Uh, well, the, that's a gestating conversation. I've done some farm planning for in, an institution, um, some landowners uh, in here in Vermont around, they had wanted to set up a farm that would be a retreat center for um, uh, urban youth programs, but they wanted it to also have multiple sources of income. Um, so how do, how do they develop those systems? Worked with a farm in the Catskills to, uh, again, a multi-functionality, a space of multifunction where they wanted to convert some of their barns into um, recording studios for BIPOC classical musicians, actually, um, who not surprisingly are underrepresented and undersupported um, in the industry. So that was a group of professionals, you know, on Broadway and in orchestras and teaching professionals who bought a farm who were trying to figure out how to have a social purpose um, entity. Um, meeting with some folks in a town here to look at supply chains um, that would support local farms, integrate uh, regenerative solar power into their farms without eliminating their production and growing that food and uh, those animals for sale both commercially, but then to some of the local schools and um, other larger institutions. So really it's, it's taking, my work currently is focused on food systems, um, but primarily it's uh, collaborative planning, collaborative design. Um, I focus a lot on um, participatory research models. So how do we, how do folks understand their, um, their current situations, develop metrics that are meaningful to them, as opposed to just the foundation or just the investor defining what the metrics are. How do they collect and analyze that data? And even how do they own that data? Um, not the ownership of knowledge is, is part of capital. Um, whether you talk about the DNA of food or patent law, um, there wouldn't be um, food systems programs at universities with tenured professors without the work of people in communities and without the extraction of knowledge from those communities. And I'm very interested in seeing how um, that practically benefits those people. Um, so uh, those are some examples of the work that I'm doing at the moment. Um, I've been asked to do some things around mutual aid in New York City um, to support some food donation programs um, and how do, how do they begin to become less, uh, less of a charity and more of a, a, a social justice institution that has revenue as part of its model.